0: Six new cases of the virus reported in L.A. Ten Americans now have died, according to Vice President Mike Pence. Total coronavirus cases, while globally topping... Uh, More than, I think, 93,000. So our finance team, as we do so well here at Bloomberg, looking at the virus, its impact on the financial sector, specifically M&A and on Wall Street traders. Here with that, Lanann Nguyen. She is finance reporter at Bloomberg News, along with Nabila Ahmed, M&A reporter at Bloomberg News. So both of them in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. So let's start with M&A, because I feel like, you know, Nabila, M&A is always important, right, to kind of get an understanding of, you know, stuff happening in the financial sector. And I feel like when it stops, it's not a good thing. What are you seeing? What are you hearing?
2: Well, already by the end of February, MA was down 27% this year and that has more to do that th- 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 there are other issues at play here other than the coronavirus right but the timing was already bad and we're seeing that people are pausing hit- hitting the pause button on deals we've got an advisor who has been who is a confirmed coronavirus uh, victim so that deals on pause we've got people putting uh, the pause button button on pause even as they Big are going deals? to meetings on the plane billion dollar plus okay. multi-billion dollar deals yeah.
1: yeah and so is there any sense of timing? I mean, did they just say, we'll pick this up in the next quarter. We're going to try and do what we can by phone. I mean, we were talking about with Lynn yesterday about this notion of even with recruiting, Mm-hmm. Deal making is a face to face game. You know, you really are looking the other person in the eye in many cases to try and figure out: D- Do I want to enter into this transaction? Right. So how it, does this play out? Do exactly. I want to meet with them? Do I want to? You know. Right. Well,
2: exactly. One of the ones we know that was that was postponed was that they wanted to go and do a site visit right. in China, and of course, you know, with the travel risk restrictions, that's right. not possible at the moment. And I think that we won't really know how it's going to play out until we know what's going to happen with the travel restrictions. Yeah. We're not talking about putting in stricter restrictions
0: all right so MA folks stuck at their desk so to our traders and we often hear that because traders are busy but it's taken on a whole new meeting lenin
3: that's right stuck at the desk used to mean that you're having a good busy day on the desk but these days banks are looking at how to move traders off the desk in the event of an illness, and it's really tricky to do that because Wall Street traders are dealing with super fast internet. I don't know how fast your internet is at home, but it's certainly never not fast speed. enough when I'm trying it's, to watch Homeland. Exactly. So if it's not fast enough for Homeland, it's not fast enough for high-speed trading, on top of which they have a ton of data, all of these internal systems, and also they have to be recorded and monitored right. by compliance. Right. Well,
1: there's that whole security element, and and there's also, a, even with all the machines, there's The human element uh, that's there as well. We we talked about that yesterday. So uh, are people sort of creating workarounds? What are they doing?
3: So it's all happening in progress. As we speak, different banks are trying to figure out, okay, first of all, who are the critical employees? How do we split them up into different shifts to make sure that not everyone gets sick all at once, dust off the disaster recovery sites, go to their places in New Jersey or wherever and dust off those machines, make sure they work. Um, But who's to
0: say that that doesn't even become problematic, right? Depending on how severe the virus becomes. That's true. True,
3: so there is a lot of scenario planning right now. We still don't know how it's gonna play out, and so there's a lot of thinking about different types of scenarios, whether disaster sites are even affected as well.
0: Nabila, you know, come back in on MA. So let's say we see, you're already seeing a slowdown. I mean, I do wonder, again, Jason and I talk about this a lot, that once we have a better idea of how big the virus outbreak is going to be um, here in the U.S., and really globally, until we start to see less cases and we get our hands around it, um, You know, until we get to that point, it's hard to predict, like, do all those M&A deals that are maybe putting on the shelf right now or on the side, do they come back in the next half of the year? It's hard to know, right? Because it depends what the market and the economic environments are. There's a lot of variables out there.
2: Exactly. And also the election campaign is a big headwind this year. Nobody wants to go into that campaign with a deal outstanding in front of the regulators but i will say but that for some deals it's actually proving to be good news Hmm. for example thermo fisher bought kyogen yesterday 10 billion plus deal and the only reason the ceo told us that he they were able to come to an agreement was the market volatility uh sort of jolted the share price and he said that allowed them to come to a midpoint and do that deal because they'd been in talks for months
0: I did wonder about with some some of the share prices being beaten up, where somebody might say, especially if it's a stock deal, you know, to buy something, it could be cheaper at that point. I don't know. Well, it depends if you're buying with your own share price. And if you've you've been wanting
2: to sell your company, but you've been holding out for that last dollar or two dollars, you're probably looking at the market and saying, you know what, I'll just let it go.
0: Right. I want to get this done.
2: Yeah.
1: All right. What happens next on Wall Street, Lynn yeah. I mean, what do you hear from people in terms of either is it a wait and see sort of thing or are people sort of moving ahead as if not to be too... Like, Crazy about it, but like Armageddon is upon yeah, us. Yeah. Like, what do
3: you want to know? I think it's a precautionary mode right now. Yeah. So they are dusting off the playbooks, trying to figure out where to put people if the virus should spread. Um, looking at what happened in Asia, but at the same time, Asia is a different case because they can always kick things around to to London and New York. What happens if this becomes a bigger global phenomenon? Where do people go? So there's a lot of planning still being done right now, and it's still very much up in the air. They're also talking to regulators about this.
0: Could we see a part? Uh, uh, you know, a, a scenario. Where there is no trading or trading volumes are reduced dramatically? I think that's. Possible, yeah.
3: um, But I wouldn't raise that alarm just yet. I yeah. think people are still trying to plan business as usual as possible cases right now. So what can we do to make sure that continu- continuity continues? And so far, people are very focused on resilience and continuity rather than that Armageddon scenario.
1: And meanwhile, and we're going to talk about this later on in the show with Heather Pearlberg. Steve Schwartzman uh, giving an interview over in India was like, we're in. We're buying here. You this know, valuations so... down. And uh, Carol sent it. <laughs> sent me the story this morning and it just said crisis playbook <laughs>
0: right <laughs> totally right funding opportunity uh, especially with beaten you know beaten up assets
2: Absolutely. And, you know, even if you look at Clorox, for example, that stock is up. Yeah. yeah. It's
0: a great story. Exactly. Don't yeah. touch my Clorox wipes. Yeah, exactly. They're
1: all gone. I used them all. <laughs> Ed
0: Kolegi offering $10 for that half bottle of hand sanitizer. <laughs> yeah,
1: we're going to start a bidding war here. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, Nabila Ahmed, thank you so much. m a reporter on the deals team here at Bloomberg. And Lenan Nguyen, finance reporter for Bloomberg. Keeping an eye on Wall Street and its reaction, uh, really, in terms of doing its business it's amid all of this virus crisis.
0: Worry. oh my god i love george harrison just love it um hey check this out everybody because life insurance companies are pursuing wealthy private colleges and yeah this is what they're doing to loan them money so what is this all about let's get into the details with uh, janet lauren she's endowments reporter here at bloomberg news made her way into our interactive broker studio what's going on here janet
4: So if you think about who's borrowing money, colleges are very likely to do so. They've got to renovate dorms. They've got to build dorms. They've got to make improvements to classrooms. So why not lend them money? And they typically go out to the public markets, you know, tax-exempt or taxable bonds. But life insurance companies, you know, they need to put their money to work. And, you know, who wouldn't want to loan money to a school like Princeton?
1: And so literally, as you lay out in your story, They just started calling, like literally cold calling (laughs) schools. Tell us about that.
4: Yes, Um, a couple of schools said they, you know, decided to take this call, and it turned out to be a pretty good deal for them. Um, The University of Richmond said, "Yeah, it was." The result of a cold call, and they liked doing this deal because it was quicker. Um, You know, the the question is, am am I going to lose out on the interest rate that I want? And you know, with public deals, it typically takes longer. So the question is, you know, could they have gotten a better deal in the public markets if they waited? But they like the ease of it. There's also a lot less disclosures, potentially less fees so you know they they seem to like it
0: so what are the what's the downside to all of this well
4: it, it, it could be a higher interest rate if you oh. you know if you didn't wait um but they you know they seem to like it
1: and are these wait who's me. they the colleges, yeah, the colleges. and right. also okay. the life insurance companies right. they've yeah, got to well, put their
4: money to work somewhere right
1: and are these big insurance companies that we're talking about or are these sort of mid-tier like, no, who, like who are we talking new york
4: about? life john hancock
1: wow and so why haven't they done this before?
4: Um, You know, it's interesting. They they decided that this could be a good new market for them, and they started pursuing it. Princeton did its first deal in 2012. Now, keep in mind, they're not going to go to every college. Because you know the schools that we mentioned in this in the story are some of the richest colleges right. out there.
0: Right. Well it's risk, right? You it's, want you don't want to take on too much risk. Absolutely. If you're an insurance company, absolutely. especially.
4: Absolutely, and they're looking to match their liabilities. Now we, we didn't really find these in, in uh, public schools and you know probably the reason is they have a different sort of competitive competitive bidding structure. And, you know, the private schools can just do these deals.
0: Is this not, you know, Jason, I think about how much time we spend, ta- I think at Lisa Brahmerts' show, you know, about private markets, right? right? And I do Money undercover. Yeah, money, money undercover. But I do think about, is this just another example of Absolutely. being able to, rather than kind of in some ways tap the public markets, go into the private markets for Absolutely. a financing need or a financial need?
4: Absolutely. And, you know, the public market deals are all very public, and they're all disclosures, and the schools have to, out a lot more information but is that good transparency well um that's a very good question you know the colleges don't have to disclose things um as but they do have their uh, public debt so it is out there what their enrollment numbers are but if you're say a a struggling small college you know chances are these life insurance companies wouldn't want to lend to you anyway right but there is less transparency
0: what does this do to juice the returns for the for the insurance companies right because they're thinking about I mean they need a certain amount of return right
4: absolutely and again these are not you know risky colleges that are going to go under the little tiny colleges in the northeast that um, you know are struggling for students
1: and so how does this fit in last question how does this fit into sort of the broader themes that you're seeing in terms of how colleges uh rich and poor sort of pay for what they need
4: Well, again, you're seeing a dichotomy between the very rich and the very poor because they can they can take advantage of these kinds of deals. Um, And if you're again, you're smaller, you're less uh, wealthy, potentially a bigger risk, you're not going to be given these types of opportunities.
1: All right. Janet Lauren, thank you so much. Endowments reporter for Bloomberg, our expert on all things higher education and a really interesting story. Princeton Vanderbilt wooed by life insurance companies literally calling up me like, hey, bro. You need to borrow some money?
0: <laughs> it's the twist and turns, though, also, I feel like, of financial companies and insurance companies, right? Totally. Like, I do wonder about exposure and transparency. Yeah. I don't know, like the risks. But as Janet mentioned, you know, they're going after certainly well-known, well-financed, um, and deep endowment uh, colleges and universities. So fascinating to see. This is Bloomberg Business Week with Carol Masser and Jason Kelly on Bloomberg Radio. Well, a couple of stories in the magazine this week that you really got to know about, both timely and in the news. One's about an abortion rights case coming before the Supreme Court. We're going to talk uh, with Bloomberg U.S. health care reporter Cynthia Coons about that. Uh, she's on the phone in New York. The other story, also in the headlines, is, of course, about the Democratic race for president, Super Tuesday. And Josh Green is national correspondent at Bloomberg Business Week. He's joining us on the phone from Washington, D.C. Both stories as said, in the magazine, hitting newsstands uh, later this week and at Bloomberg.com and on the terminal. Cynthia, we do want to start with you. Tell us about this case.
5: Thanks. Thanks for having me. So the Supreme Court today heard an abortion case that involves a law that's around requiring hospital admitting privileges for abortion providers. It's an identical law, nearly identical law, to one that they heard about four years ago out of Texas. This time it's out of Louisiana. But the reason this case is really critical is that the court has agreed to hear Louisiana's argument that doctors shouldn't be able to bring challenges to these laws in the first place. And if Louisiana is successful with that argument, not only would this law be instated, but it would throw into chaos all the other litigation going on around the country to challenge laws that are specifically targeted at abortion providers.
6: So, Cynthia, um, Cynthia what, one of the things that, you know, you, you've been working on is actually kind of a series of articles around this. The first was sort of one that we did also recently about uh, abortion tax and sort of the the business implications that, that abortion providers are facing. And that's actually even driving them, um, a, a lot of them, to close. And so this is obviously, it looks like almost like a two-prong uh, attack on on abortion rights. And, and so how, what... What is the likelihood that this Louisiana case becomes, I mean, it almost supersedes the abortion tax, because if the Supreme Court wades into this, what what could happen?
5: Well, that's an excellent point. These go hand in hand. So the first attack is the legislative one. The state houses around the country have been passing laws that make it harder for abortion providers to operate. It started since about 2010 when Republicans took over more and more state houses throughout the country. But that's also led to what's known as the abortion tax. And that's where businesses or vendors that might work with abortion providers become reluctant to do so or cancel contracts or back out or won't insure them specifically over concerns that they're riskier than they may actually be in real life. So running an abortion clinic is particularly hard right now from both a business and legal perspective. But the one avenue that abortion providers have had has been, have been the courts, and they've been able to challenge these laws that go after their businesses specifically. These are laws that say an abortion doctor may need hospital admitting privileges but wouldn't necessarily assign a comparable regulation to another provider that provides some sort of comparable care, outpatient care. So these laws are called by the abortion movement, they're called abortion rights movement, they're called trap laws because they're perceived to target these providers specifically and back them into a corner. And so the challenge here is if abortion doctors are not allowed to be the ones to represent their patients in these cases, then there really isn't any mechanism for these laws to be knocked down. It would come down to whether or not you could find a woman seeking an abortion willing to carry out a case, and that's a really challenging prospect.
1: So hearings today, when do we have resolution?
5: Likely by June.
1: Okay. We're gonna leave it there. Cynthia Coons, thank you so much. US Healthcare Reporter for Bloomberg joining us on the phone from New York City. Let's head down to our ninety nine studio in D C. Josh Green is there, recovering from Super Tuesday. <laughs> All right. We've had a lot happen over the last 36 to 48 hours. I
6: blacked out, Josh. What (laughs) happened? (laughs) What the heck happened? Where are we now?
1: Where do we go from here, Josh?
7: I woke up this morning and had to pause for a minute and think if I dreamed all that or if it actually just happened. (laughs) Um, But but it actually did happen. The race has been completely upended. We've gone from a world where Bernie Sanders was the front runner, looked like he would amass a a majority, uh, if not a plurality of uh, delegates going into the Milwaukee Convention in July to all of a sudden. Uh, Joe Biden comes storming back, wins 10 states, has the delegate lead, and is now the clear favorite to emerge as the Democratic nominee to challenge Trump in the fall.
0: Who would have thought that a couple of weeks ago? All right. So, yeah, I think now it's, OK, who potentially will be the first the the individual who goes up against President Trump. How do you see it between Bernie? I mean, the race isn't over yet in terms of the No, the race isn't
7: over, and and there's a long way to go. And the piece I did in Business Week this week points out that there is an eerie parallel that a lot of Democrats are worried about with 2016, Mm -hmm. where you have an establishment favorite who has a delegate lead uh, and yet isn't going to wrap this thing up for months and months and months and is running against an insurgent in Bernie Sanders whose supporters have already been jilted once, were very unhappy about it, 2016 now they face the same thing this time around and Joe Biden's job should he emerge as the nominee is going to be to try and unify a party that is gonna have to stick together if they're gonna have any chance of defeating Trump in the fall
6: well the other thing that you point out so well in the article Josh is this existential moment for the for the Democrats where one candidate sort of looks like the future and and one maybe speaks to its past
7: yeah, I mean the the remarkable thing about the way this the the, the race has narrowed since last night. This this is functionally a two man affair right now between Joe Biden uh, and Bernie Sanders. And if you look at Biden's coalition who supported him last night, uh, it was essentially a throwback to the Obama coalition where Biden won senior voters, he won African Americans, and he won white collar professionals in the suburbs who supported Obama and helped drive Democrats' uh, midterm gains two years ago. Whereas Sanders despite the fact that he's 78 years old, uh, really represents the young, rising generation of Democrats. Not just young people, but working class, Latino. We saw that coalition in Nevada, which is a good proxy for what the future of America is going to look like. Uh, the problem for Biden is that the one part of the Obama coalition he hasn't managed to draw is young people. They are still loyal to Bernie. So what we're going to have to look for over the next two, three months is, can he find a way to bring them into his coalition, unify the party, and have a fighting chance against Trump? And
0: he was dismissive, if I remember, in one of an interviews where somebody asked him about the young population, he said something to the effect that, well, they don't vote anyway. So, Yeah.
7: Yeah, well, you know that's always the politician's move. Why doesn't so and so support you? Oh, that's not important. Yeah. But inside inside Biden's campaign, I promise you, they are acutely aware of the fact that uh, they have a real challenge in, in in attracting younger voters and exciting younger voters. Hillary Clinton was unable to do so in 2016, lost the race, so Biden is well aware that he's gonna have to do better.
1: All right, so Michigan, uh, that is front and center, it feels like, next Tuesday. What else are you watching there, Josh?
7: Well, I think Michigan, as you point out, is gonna be fascinating because four years ago, Bernie Sanders unexpectedly won Michigan. Right. Now, uh, you have, it looks like Biden has pulled ahead in polls. I think that's gonna be a good proxy for whether or not Biden uh, has a chance to walk away with this race if he wins, or can Bernie mount a comeback? You know, as delegate, uh, as vote totals roll in from California, which can take weeks, Bernie's delegate total is going to climb. Should he uh, repeat his win in Michigan? I think then we go through a whole news cycle of is Bernie coming back? Clearly, Bernie is sacrificing nothing. He just came out and gave a very peevish press conference in which he attacked the establishment, and the press, and everybody else. So there is no sign whatsoever of the party coming together. I think Michigan will be the first real indicator of which way things are headed in the post-Super Tuesday world.
0: All right. Well, great reporting as always, Um, Josh. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And check out uh, Josh's story, along with Cynthia Kuhn's story. They'll be in the magazine later on this week. Of course, uh, Josh Green, who follows politics for us here at uh, Bloomberg Business And our
1: thanks to Joel Weber as Mm -hmm. well, riding along with us uh, across those two stories. It's really, uh, we get a sneak peek. It's a great issue.
0: So as the race for the Democratic presidential nomination narrows, industries and companies and those of us who report on them are thinking about where the candidates stand on issues. And a big one is where they stand when it comes to technology. Writing about that today is Joshua Brustein, tech writer here at Bloomberg Businessweek in our Interactive Brokers studio. So looking at Bernie Sanders, looking at Joe Biden and where they stand when it comes to technology. So break it down for us.
8: So... I think the easiest way to look at it is that Bernie Sanders is someone who inspires very strong emotions. He's taken basically the anti-tech industry stance on any number of um, issues. He has said he would absolutely look into breaking the big tech companies up. Um, He wants to ban facial recognition in law enforcement, um, wants much stronger labor laws um, in ways that would impact the tech industry. And Joe Biden has sort of criticized the tech companies, but hasn't been very hard on them one way or the other. And honestly, I don't think people were thinking about him all that much Hmm. until, frankly, last night. Yeah.
1: And until now when they really are. Um, And part of that is he's got some ties there and has raised some money from the tech world, right? By. Sure,
8: he's he's done some fundraisers from the large tech companies. He hasn't uh, raised a whole lot of money in comparison to some of the other candidates, right. and he certainly hasn't done as well in raising from tech employees. Right. Interesting. Um, but he has been a more conventional Democratic candidate. He goes to the big he goes to big businesses and has asked for some money. I know he did a Amazon um, fundraiser late last year. Yep. For instance.
0: Well, and I do wonder too. You know. Um, because we are, are at a juncture where I do feel like there's some really big issues when it comes to technology, whether it's privacy issues, whether or not there needs to be more regulatory oversight over social media companies. But I mean, how much, I guess, Joshua, is, can the president do versus does it need a Congress on its side to pass rules and you know a regulatory framework?
8: I think that that is a very good point. There's uh, There's been a desire, a stated desire, to have some new privacy rules yeah. for the better part of two years now. Mm-hmm. But the fact is Congress isn't passing much of anything. And there are very different ideas about how those rules would be approached um, from the Democrats and the Republicans. And a new president isn't going to come into a very different situation. Um, I so I think it's interesting to look at kind of the rhetorical positioning of the president's Mm. presidential candidates that can have a big difference. But yeah, uh, as you said, they're not necessarily going to come in and get to do whatever they
1: want. Right. And fair to say, watch what I do here. The relationship Uh greatness coming. Get ready. Be quiet, everyone. President (laughs) Trump and the tech industry. It's complicated.
8: It is complicated. Nicely done. (laughs) All right. Nicely done. Um, (laughs) Trump has been quite critical of the tech companies. Uh, He is loudly proclaiming that companies like Facebook and Google have an anti conservative bias. On the other hand, he has um, used them very effectively yeah. as a yeah. megaphone. Well um, his He's proven to be a very effective communicator um, and based on using the specific kind of tech communications that happen there. Um, he's also, uh, you know, his DOJ is going after antitrust
1: issues. So you see, um, you're seeing it from all sides with him. Right. Well, and it's interesting, you know, there's been a lot written and, and talked about recently about Brad Parscale the campaign manager mm-hmm. uh, for the president's re-election campaign. And, I mean, this is a guy who came up through the digital world and so effectively used social media, Facebook yeah. specifically, to get the president elected, right?
8: Absolutely. The defining characteristic of the 2016 Trump campaign was a much more aggressive digital strategy, or I should say one of the defining yeah. characteristics. Yeah, I think, I, I think
1: you could say defining. I mean, especially if you sort of synthesize the... the The now president on Twitter, you think about the Facebook strategy, you think about all the different elements and also some of the relationships that the president has managed to cultivate, be it Peter Thiel. um, You know, we and others have reported that he met with Mark Zuckerberg at the White House not too long ago, I believe, when Zuckerberg was in D.C. to testify on. You know, I mean, and again, it, it is a. It's a tortured relationship, maybe, is the other way to move. I don't think that's an option on Yeah,
0: no, right. Um, Joshua, I, I am also curious, you know, is big tech getting smarter in terms of reading mm. the writing on the wall and just saying, okay, let's figure out how to
8: police ourselves so that we can kind of take it away from um, D.C.? I think that that's what they would like to do. Um, to be fair, they have seen a lot of public pushback. They mm. haven't faced any real tangible consequences yet, we'll see what happens with these antitrust investigations. I think that those are a significant threat. But in terms of Congress coming up with some way to put rules on them, you know, privately a lot of people within the tech industry say that they're not quite as concerned about that as maybe it seems like they would be.
0: One last question, U.S. versus Europe.
8: Yeah, I think Europe is a completely different situation. The um, You really see a much more aggressive stance from policymakers over there.
1: Yeah. All right, Joshua Brustein, thank you so much. Always good to catch no up toodling, with you. No tootling, right? Well, he's going to tootle back over <laughs> to the other He's going to tootle I'm tootling right back. And if you that. don't so know right what we here.
0: mean, you have to go back to our Twitter, and you're just going to have to listen to what we did last week.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Just listen to the conversation. And shame on you that you don't know what that means. And if you don't know that joke... You yeah. need to lock in. Yeah. That's just sad for you. Tootling. Yeah, tootling. <laughs> Joshua Brustein, uh, <laughs> one guys. of the most read writers uh, here. Yeah, this is a great stuff. story because now there are two, uh, in, for all intents and purposes, is Elizabeth Wallace. And Warren, how they feel uh, about different matters,
0: do. whether it's healthcare, whether it's big tech. I mean, these are things that Americans should want to know about.
1: Right. And so entrenched in our daily lives, as we know. I'm rather my car. This is The Drive to the Close. That punk to music will drive us to the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio.
0: It is time for The Drive to the Close on this Wednesday. As you just heard from Charlie Equities, we definitely have a rally underway. We're just topping off and coming a little bit lower, but we're still uh, pretty much near our highs of the session. Alan Lance is back with us, Research Director at LanceGlobal.com, President of Alan B. Lance and Associates. And he's joining us on the phone once again from Toledo, Ohio. Alan, uh, nice to be here here with you again uh interesting week jason and i have been kidding i feel like since monday we keep thinking all right wait tomorrow's friday right no it's still just (laughs) wednesday so tell me a little bit about the market activity that you've seen we've had folks say you know what it was overdone it's a buying opportunity folks are overdoing it other folks who said you know what we need to be a little bit more cautious here how do you see it
9: well, as you know carol we we were uh, raising cash as far as uh uh in, into the new highs uh, just 2 weeks ago and right. and I, the way i see it is is that uh, you're going to have this volatility for for a while i, I you know I, I would be buying and, and accumulating with uh uh limit orders below the market on on those um you know multiple uh a uh, of down, you know, thousand point days. And, and, um, you know, if, if you're overexposed in equities or, or especially in, in tack or some of the high flyers, I, I'd be using the strength that we've had, you know, as far as today and, and Monday to, to, to lighten up. I, I think you're going to have this volatility in both directions. Uh, uh, it, it's a battle of the uncertainty of the coronavirus, you know, versus uh incredible amount of cash on the sidelines and interest rates so low that, uh, uh, I, I think if you're a long-term investor, which we are, buying high-quality income-producing um, equities here in, into weakness and panic selling uh, makes a lot of sense. And so what are specific names that seem to be
1: standing out to you at, at amid all of this, Alan?
9: Well, there's a wide variety of uh, CVS uh, as far as in the healthcare arena yeah under under uh sixty dollars the the yield is 3.35 percent uh so so you know you, you can have that opportunity uh uh for, from uh, asset managers you can buy an invesco under fourteen dollars it's a nine percent uh increasing dividend um again uh you know i don't know where the bottom is but i yeah. think if you buy it at those levels and just hold it long term it, it's going to be you know like 10 years ago when we were buying Apple and it became an income play. Um, and you're going to have not only solid income compared to, you know, 1% on the 10-year treasury, but you're also going to have some appreciation uh, as long as you're looking at it from a, you know, two, two, two three-year time frame.
0: Ellen, one thing I do want to ask you, I mean, healthcare is our best performing group here in the S&P 500 among the major industry group. It's up uh, about 5.7%. And that is uh, the big Biden win uh, in Super Tuesday. Of course, uh, Bernie Sanders, seen as you know offering you know medicare you know for all health care for all uh, but there is the question and doing away with private insurance so uh, you know the health care sector has been weighed down uh, as bernie sanders has you know moved up in the polls that seemed to change as a result of last night's voting so i do wonder is health care a play do you see opportunities in that right now or is it too soon
9: no, we like it. I mean, we, we like buying high-quality, you know, a- income-producing healthcare. We also like, uh, you know, I, I think the next step is financials. Uh, they've just been hammered from the standpoint of lower interest rates, squeezing their margins, and, and I think there's some opportunity there, and, and that's been overdone. So so whenever you have these extremes, Carol, I, I think it's a, it's a situation where you want to be on the other side, pick up quality names that, you know, you wouldn't get at these prices otherwise, and uh, and be patient with them. What are you avoiding
1: right now, Alan?
9: You know, I, I would not chase the high flyers. I mean, uh, yeah. you know, we we talked about that last time. Uh, you know, Apple, I I love the company and and we've owned it for for decades. But uh, you know, over 300, I you know, I wouldn't be buying it. And and if you own too much, I, I would sell it as as it as it moves up. Again, not the whole position, but uh, there's just so many people buying the same uh, stocks with with the passive investing, and, and 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 that was part of this dramatic sell-off we had last week. Was just everybody's, you know, getting out the door. Or at the same time, and and uh, I don't I don't think that's over. I think you're going to see volatility in both directions. So, so uh, you know, I, I wouldn't be chasing these companies that uh, you know everybody loves. Uh, and and again, we might miss you know some of the uh, latter half of the move but i think the easy money has been made on apple and and uh you know it's, it's, it's going to be uh, an average performer almost like what berkshire hathaway i mean he had such right. great performance and in the last 10 years he's really you know underperformed and i, I think you're going to see that in some of these companies that are just uh you know almost iconic from a valuation standpoint is this
0: a market to load up on shorts with the expectations that we're going to head down again
9: yeah you know i'd be very careful with the shorts because you're going to see this volatility you know uh continue at least for for a few mu- four months uh until we get some some base building uh but it, you know we we really haven't taken advantage of the shorts like we should I, our first step was to build cash and we did that and now we're redeploying that those those profits, uh, but uh, you know I, I would be careful on, on, on the short side, uh, just because of, of this incredible amount of cash on the sidelines. Uh, but uh, you know, if markets go back to new highs and 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 they're not taking into account uh, uh, as far as the economic slowdown with with this coronavirus, then then yeah, I, I would look at reestablishing some short positions, but but not yet.
1: All right, Alan Lance, always good to catch up with you, Director of Research at LanceGlobal.com, President of Alan B. Lance and Associates, joining us on the phone from Toledo, Ohio. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at two PM Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio.